So just yesterday, it's been brought to my attention that there has been a mongrel in the Apex Legends community. And if you guys haven't seen it yet, this is just going to be a, same, a shameless self-promo. I did a video of me reading this Reddit post. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this for you here right now. You can check it out on my YouTube page. Um, but it's about this this character that was introduced. Her name is uh, Loba, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if I should just play the video off of uh off of the <laughs> the phone or if I should just read the 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 copy pasta. Uh, but, I'd say just go ahead and read it. It probably sounds about the same. All right, man. Yeah, I'll I'll go ahead and do that. So this guy has a little bit too much free time on his hands. But guys, I'm shaking. I'm fucking shaking. I never wanted to breed with anyone more than I want to with Loba. That perfect curvy body. Those bountiful breasts. The childbearing hips of a literal goddess. It honestly fucking hurts knowing that I'll never mate with her, pass my genes through her, and have her birth a set of perfect offspring. I would do fucking anything for the chance to get Loba pregnant. Anything! And the fact that I can't is quite honestly too much to fucking bear. Why would Respawn create something so perfect? To fucking tantalize us? Fucking laugh in our faces? Honestly, guys, I just fucking can't anymore and then this is the part where he just says like fuck really loudly and mm. the first response is what the shit man if you haven't seen this copy pasta uh please do so if you don't know who i'm talking about feel free to look her up um this isn't a real woman by the way if, if you couldn't tell already but yeah it, i mean it got like 20 upvotes on reddit everyone's everyone looked at the post and they were just like oh okay that guy's weird <laughs> have you had the misfortune of seeing coming to america do you feel any better about yourself after watching the Oprah interview? Are you tired of royalty in your life? We're Mars on Life. We're here to help. Just make sure you tune in every week. That way, you'll feel better. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Mancini. Uh, with me, of course, as always, is... Uh, apparently, someone who hasn't kept up with the news. Uh... <laughs> Lucky duck. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it, you know, it's blissful ignorance. It really is. If I didn't miss anything, I don't feel bad about it. And that's, and that's great. Honestly, I'm envious of you between having endured uh, coming to America, the sequel, and then having to have discussions about the whole Harry and Meghan thing, which I still really haven't watched it. I've just seen snippets of it, and that's just because I really don't care. Um, but I still have a lot to say about the royal family and why it just needs to be abolished in the first place. But I digress. Um, yeah, uh, slow news week. Should note uh, before we get started with our incredibly special guest on the day that this episode premieres, uh, it'll have been 
uh, one year and one day since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic and one day short of basically one year of quarantine slash lockdown. Mm, um, fuck yeah. I don't know about <laughs> you, but man, I'm just I'm pumped. I really am. I'm 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 floored at the fact that like, is it just me? Like, is this two weeks taking longer than than I than I expected it to? Like, is this March of last year all over again? I just I don't know. I feel like did March of last year ever really end though? I feel like I feel like just yesterday I was getting the uh, not the go ahead, but the exact opposite. The the don't go ahead to uh, go out to go outside, spend time with family, not go to restaurants, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just. Like people are doing it anyway, so at the end of the day, I kind of think to myself, "What pandemic?" You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Well, it, yeah. It, it's it's as though what is yellow tier then versus what is red tier now don't really correlate. Like basically, if you were in the yellow tier a year ago, you were screwed. But if you're in the red tier now, which is almost about as screwed as you can get, you have even more. And I, I hate to use this word because it's going to make me sound like a Fox News guy, but you have more freedom to do stuff under the red tier than you did under the yellow tier, even though it's arguably more dangerous now. But you got more freedom to do stuff like, I don't know, it's this is just sort of marking uh, the occasion. I'm not going to get into the weeds of the frustration of life in the year of covid However, we have a very special guest, of course, joining us who, much like Jovan, is somebody that uh, we've been trying to get onto the show since last season, or at least we've anticipated coming onto the show, and um, now's the chance. So, uh, special guest, please introduce yourself. Hi, guys. My name is Andrew Martinez. I am a journalist who's been made his way to the east coast here and i am a fellow csun let's say attendee so uh <laughs> and a long time friend of ryan so uh really happy to be here uh really excited to finally get on so thank you guys mm-hmm. pleasure to have you now you said attendee that implies that you just didn't uh, you didn't graduate from there like you said you were on the east coast correct uh, yeah, beyond beyond the season chat. Um, yes, I okay. am now on the East Coast. Um, I left to New Mexico after season. Uh, I needed that change of scenery big time. And uh, before you know it, I made my way to Boston. I followed my girlfriend that I met in New Mexico to Boston. And I have now experienced enough East Coast culture to know I need to go back. <laughs> to, to, to California. Yeah, or, or the Southwest in general, because East Coast Got it. is not for me. Got it. Well, Mancini's going to hate what I say next, but God bless, really. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing that you that that you did that. And coming as speaking as someone who wants to leave the state to actually see what the other forty nine have to offer, um, and beyond, it's like really that is that is amazing, you know. Like, and you don't obviously. It's good to to make those. I wouldn't call them mistakes, but to have that knowledge of you know where and where you don't sort of fit like at a homestead, 
you know, if the East Coast isn't for you, it isn't for you. Mm-hmm. I already know from experience that it isn't for me either. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I totally sympathize with you, man. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, the way you say that kind of sounds like one of these, you know, I feel like I log into YouTube every day and see like another video of uh, some dude filming homeless shelters or tents on Venice Beach and just being like, California is done. And like, you know, I know you didn't give off those vibes, but it pains <laughs> me to see that. Yeah, I mean, I don't try to come off as someone who's like the next Will Wit. Oh, I'm going to be fleeing California and all the other Prager you bullshit. But it's California has its moments. I, I will I will attest to that. Um, short of I guess the I guess weird comfort of living near the beach that I hear a lot of people say. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I'm 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 still trying to convince myself or wrap my head around how that is reassuring. Um. <laughs> No, yeah, California does does indeed have its moments, so. Yeah, I mean, I would kill to go to a real beach. We do have beaches here, but uh, <laughs> as you guys uh, may have seen, you know, you guys have probably seen the Atlantic Ocean, but um, yeah. yep. you, take, you take SoCal things for granted, and uh, I don't, you know, being in a big city out here in Boston, there's not much of a difference in cost of living, in fact, might be more expensive out here, but all the more reason to want to go back home. Uh, uh, I love California, and the day you guys leave, and which you should, you definitely should explore the world. But uh, the mm-hmm. day you guys leave, you will realize, uh, you know, how special California is. Now, now, which part of SoCal were you originally from? So I grew up in Elysian Valley or Frogtown. Uh, which mm. is down the hill from Dodger Stadium, pretty close. To, I always say Echo Park. Surprisingly, people out here know the area. So um, Echo Park, basically down the block. But uh, yeah, my neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, is uh, right there by downtown LA, increasingly gentrifying uh, mm-hmm. ever since I left. So mixed feelings about going back to my own neighborhood. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's where I grew up. Of course, uh, Kenny and Pete have to be brought up at some point uh, sooner or later in this episode, but I know that's always been a, a topic of discussion among the four of us. Uh, it's been where we're all from and how it's all kind of shaped us in our own unique ways. Um, yeah, I guess how how did you end up uh, eventually deciding on going to CSUN and, and choosing journalism to be your uh, your career path? <laughs> I feel like that's the reaction you get when you ask a lot of people that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all due respect to CSUN, because it did shape me and mold me, like, and led me to this path. But, you know, as a kid growing up in SoCal, you see the USCs, the UCLAs, and you say, that's the goal. And it's funny as far as journalism passions, I've been, I'm, Still to this day, a diehard sports fan. I love anything and everything sports. And I told myself, well, maybe I'll be a sports journalist. No way I'm going to play. And journalists, uh, you know, my mom, you know, gave me the push of just like, yeah, just do J school. And uh, I came to realize UCLA and USC do not have undergrad journalism schools. And hmm. I said, what am I going to do? I applied across the country and said, you know what, I got to you know, I got to stay close to home, 
kind of help support my family. So I ended up going to CSUN. And, you know, uh, commuter school does not make freshman year very fun. And <laughs> I had a, I, my advisor was very poor because he told me to take, or he let me take 8 a.m. classes Monday through Saturday my first year. So oh. it was a, a, it was a, uh, yeah, it was a, a rough start, but, you know, I grew in to it and before you knew it i ran into the sundial so it was a interesting path see sebastian i didn't bring up the sundial first uh-huh. <laughs> i knew it was going to be brought up though i mean it doesn't it's just it's just another band-aid being ripped off not the same band-aid so oh no man i had a i had a yeah. shitty advisor too so i i'm right there with you well i i know ryan's uh well i guess the scv is not inland scv whatever area that's called i feel like i'm losing la knowledge every day that i'm gone but uh, where sebastian or seb how do you prefer to be called by a guest on the podcast oh uh let's see actually thinking here because no one i know uses my full real name it's usually like seb sebby shugsy seabass i mean yeah, I think uh, Seth is fair. Ryan, uh, <laughs> Ryan says, "Ryan says, hey, buddy,' so many times to me that it haunts me in my nightmares." So <laughs> I can hear point, you too. Yeah. Yeah. At, at this point, you can just you can call me whatever you want, man. You're good. <laughs> Appreciate it, Seth. And uh, please tell me, if, you know, if I did not know previously, where did you go to high school? So I actually went to Burbank High School. Ah. I'm in the Burbank area currently, and what you said about CSUN being a commuter school—I mean, you, you weren't lying. Um, are you are you familiar with Burbank High School? Did, do you have do you know people that um, went there? As far as I recall, because you know I grew up hanging out in like Glendale and funny Austin, Burbank, and that little little downtown Burbank area that was at least the reputation it had amongst my friends was that. Oh, there's always police cars after 9 p.m. going up and down, and oh, Burbank yeah. High School kids get to go into town to eat lunch, which I never knew <laughs> was true or not. But um, I have, uh, you know, that's my image of Burbank High. Oh, uh, trust me, uh, you're not wrong on any front of that. Um, and, and you know what? I, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this to be mean or stereotypical. And they can also attest to it contributing to the problem but i'll get into how that's like all sort of a joke um burbank high school has a or currently i'm not sure if it has currently or had in the past a very very large armenian community and being that burbank was so close with glendale both you know size scope as well as just population you know they're on the cusp of each other uh mm -hmm. it, it was always sort of this turf war with burbank police department and uh <laughs> armenian kids from from burbank high school and at that time they knew each other so well that it was just sort of like it was like sort of a friendly rivalry if that makes any sense and i and i know this for a fact because i have some friends in glendale um who know these people in particular that were like yeah they just they just get on each other's cases it's you know they don't even they don't even pull them over anymore. Like they see the license God. plate, they see the car, and they're just like, like they see the car speeding down San Fernando, and they're just like, oh fuck it, it's that guy. Let oh him go. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you say it so casually, like, oh yeah, there's a rivalry between 
uh, <laughs> high school students and the police at my high school. Like, you ever play? Uh, uh, you, ever, you ever play that game Bully by Rockstar? Yeah, great game. Kind of like that. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny you say you had a big Armenian population too, because my high school, Marshall High School, which is in God, I'm gonna butcher this. Los Feliz, Los Feliz. Oh, like, oh, Los Feliz. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't even remember how I used to say it. I, I haven't been gone that long, but I that's where my high school was off of Sunset, and we had also had a big Armenian population. And you know, I went to Thomas Star King down the street, high middle school, and it was uh, an introduction to Armenians because you don't really, you know, when growing up you see the diversity a bit in elementary, but it was uh, an eye opener in middle and high school, and I, I'm very thankful for it, but. It's definitely a certain dynamic out there in that Burbank Glendale area, and you know, yeah. um, I they're some of the coolest people I know. But I do know that uh, it's a very unique uh, population that you don't see in any other communities. I could tell you, I've never seen Armenian out here, so uh, <laughs> it's something that should be valued out there. Definitely, definitely, man. It's not of the same size as Glendale and Burbank, but I know there there's not as large of a Armenian population in Santa Clarita Valley. Um, but we're, we're also a very unique place uh, for many other reasons that Sebastian and I have gone over. And, and I know Andrew and I have had many a conversation about it. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, when it, when it came down to getting to work at the sundial and uh sort of expand both as a, you know, you, you were a sports writer, sports editor, and then editor-in-chief. Um, I guess, what was that progression for you kind of like? Because I, I definitely I definitely saw it, but I guess for, for you looking back on it, I guess, what was it like getting to advance from being, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to, having a passion for sports writing, but then reaching the level of becoming an editor and then being tapped on the shoulder to say, Hey, you want to be EIC? <laughs> yeah. The tapped on the shoulder is one way to put it. I remember <laughs> I began at the student newspaper in my final year, like a lazy student, a journalism student at the student newspaper mm-hmm. as a sports uh, first, first semester of my last or supposed to be, let's say senior year. And uh, as a sports reporter, uh, you know, did, did, uh, was telling myself, you know, like I'm going to graduate and by spring got to go hard. So I, you know, went above and beyond. I traveled for sports games, uh, you know, up and down. SoCal, And, uh, you know, I covered, I pitched in to cover different beats and, uh, you know, I got the good graces of the then editor in chief to become the sports editor. And I told myself, this is great. You know, I'm going to get the Little did I know, but, you know, when you become an editor at the, at the school paper, you're just like, this is it. Like, you know, five years down the line, New York Times is going to see this and say, yep. So I was excited to be an editor at my student paper, but little did I know, uh, there's plenty more to learn. And um, I was actually going to graduate in spring 14 when um, I got that tap on the shoulder to say, hey, uh, would you like to be IC? And without getting too much into the story, before I knew it, I was uh, doing some uh, doing some math to work out my credits to not graduate that semester and continue on. 
And uh, I you know, sat there as a year as EIC. Uh, I don't want to say, uh, I hate prefacing things by saying I don't want to say. I'll say <laughs> that, sorry, uh, I began with a new publisher of the paper when I came in, was transitioning from a weekly to a daily. I mean, I'm sorry, a daily to a week. And I was also dealing with uh, a new content management system halfway through the year. So uh, I was very much thrown in the fire, um, but, uh, and it was difficult. I learned a lot of lessons about, uh, you know, I learned, I honestly, like I learned a lot of lessons about friendship and work and how to, you know, at a very, you know, I was still probably 24 at the time. So it's a very, a lot, a lot to, uh, you know, process and handle, but uh, it was a very formative experience. So uh, yeah. I'm better for it, yes, but uh, it was definitely not the path I was going for. It was certainly fascinating getting to see all of the stuff that changed, watching the paper go from a daily to a weekly. And I, you know, I got a glimpse of how it was uh, back when it was still a daily paper and just thinking to myself, wow, working on this every day would be uh would be mental like it it would just be really exhausting and you know to see that transition it was encouraging but at the same time it it definitely seemed to me like everybody was every all the editors were really trying to get used to this new standard between the new publisher um you know the new weekly format and then just the ever constant struggle of just having enough content uh week after week and and that was something you were able to at least to my eyes it was something you were able to over overcome um despite all the hurdles that we could talk about but won't yeah no, now, i appreciate that you thought it that way if anything too i you know because i was the guy that i was like the young the young guy on the staff so i didn't know totally what to expect um, and I, I give you a hell of a lot of credit, especially when it comes down to having, helping me switch from sort of the opinion mindset as, you know, an opinion editor at the time and an opinion writer and giving me a little bit more of that kind of news, I don't know, that news angle or that, that ability to see things through the lens of a news editor um, which of course I was by that point. So that that's something I, I owe a great deal to you, um, just because we had a lot of struggles that uh, that second semester uh, right before your tenure was up. So trying to kind of change my way of thinking was certainly useful down the road. I, I can certainly say it's helping me out now, but at the time I needed it just because the way things were being handled and especially just all of the news we were getting that year, it, it, it kind of needed one extra person to be a little bit more savvy about it. When you look back on that year, what, what are some of the news stories that you remember most? I can already think of at least two, but um, um, are there any that yeah. stand out still to this day? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, uh, there's still definitely some things like, you know, I've, I've, you know, hopped around a couple of journalism. I've hopped around several newspapers at this point in my life. And each time, you know, someday I'll still my resume. And there's still some news stories back then in college that, you know, you think, you know, oh, like I'll have a portfolio of features. Like, no, like I had uh, a literal uh, uh, 
murder. Uh, I, I want to say uh, an alleged murder uh, mm. of a student. Um, I forget his name, Al Qadi, but a student who was trying to sell his car. I see some student who was trying to sell his car on Craigslist. Met up mm-hmm. with a guy, as far as I remember, out in the boonies and uh, was allegedly murdered. And that was a story that really, you know, <laughs> threw us in the fire. We, the guy lived um, on, I believe, some, you know, near the campus and, you know, we're outside of his house, we're right there with some of the TV media. And that was a real wake up moment. But before mm-hmm. all of that, we also dealt with the uh, death of uh, Armando Villa, a fraternity mm-hmm. pledge who uh, died in the hazing incident when they sent him hiking without water. And, uh, you know, I don't recall, uh, I hate the, the fact that I can't recall too many details about it because that was a you know, super impactful story. But, uh, you know, yeah. coming to a college newspaper, you don't expect to cover that kind of stuff. And But that's life. It's going to be real stuff like that. It's not going to, you know, give, give you like a bunch of cushy features and stuff. So I really got thrown into it. There were a few other uh, items. But, yeah, like students dying is not you know is very hard to tackle and when mm. you're a bunch of kids running around yeah we're adults but really just kids running around it's uh it's really hard and you know and beyond that too nobody ever thinks of any you know emotional thought or anything like that it's just like well let's just get the reports and it's just like yeah no this is a fellow student this guy's like younger than me like i'm sure there's probably connections for from one of our own staff so uh mm-hmm. yeah a, a, a great experience but you know you don't want to cover students dying as you know you don't want to cover that as student newspaper so mm-hmm. uh, definitely hard stuff yeah no i remember i i think i remember where i was i was at home in my kitchen having coffee when the news about armando via broke and it was you know it was before my sophomore year started and it was before i i had even joined because at that point I was set on joining a fraternity. And so that news shook me because I was thinking, well, this is, this is a little bit weird, especially given uh, which specific fraternity, which, you know, I I won't get into details about uh, my connection with said fraternity. Uh, It should be said, I didn't ultimately join them, but um, yeah, his, his death. And then uh, Abdullah Al-Qadi, that, what happened to Al-Qadi was something that it really threw me for a ringer just because after that freshman year of getting to commute and going back and forth from, from campus, like it didn't register as much about the sense of community and how much one thing on campus can arguably affect a very small portion of the school population, especially the population that lives on campus or lives in Northridge. And by the time I was a sophomore and I was living on campus, that was when it started to hit even harder when it came to, you know, what happened with uh, Armando Villa, which actually, now that I'm thinking about it, what happened to Armando was a different fraternity that I have a familial connection to. That fraternity, the one that I do have a connection to, they had a similar hazing situation that resulted in them getting kicked off campus for what was supposed to be six years. I think they only got five years of suspension. And of course, that's what led to the infamous ban of Rush for spring 2015, um, which Sebastian and I have talked at length about. Of course, 
this was before Sebastian joined our organization, but it was definitely it was definitely a very harrowing moment for all of the the Greek life organizations and just for the campus as a whole. This was something that the administration had to deal with, and they they were kind of in the hot seat when it came to what needed to be done or what should have been done. Um, yeah, no, th- those two stories definitely stand out to me among all the crazy stuff from that year. Um, you, you had hinted at it earlier about how we first met and, and the story behind that. I don't know if you, if you wanted to share that or <laughs> I, I'm fascinated now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny because, you know, um, I don't know if you, like, uh, yeah, like I remember, I, I don't recall our very first meeting, but I do remember what sticks with me is your interview for uh, opinion position. And, you know, I remember going to the publisher's office and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was our, we had known each other already, but it was really our first real chat. And mm-hmm. I remember it was a very lengthy chat. And I do remember you telling me kind of some of your, uh, you know, some of your high school journalism history and, uh, you know, I, I hate to say I can't remember too many details. I just remember it was my longest interview, but, you know, it, went by, mm-hmm. it flew by. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I knew you were the guy for it, but it was just a, a, an eye-opener. And, uh, you know, I knew you do what you were doing right away. So it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, yeah, and, and then, of course, you had, a, you know, a mentor, which is also kind of a, you know, another guy who uh, we can probably go at length about, but I'm glad uh, you came in and you weren't molded by, you know, uh, anybody. You stayed yourself and you didn't, you know, mm. you didn't tell yourself you have to like follow anybody's style or anything. You already uh, kind of were saying like, I'm gonna, this is my brand. This is who I'm going to be. And that was apparent mm. right away. So, uh, you know, I'm uh, so, yeah. And uh, is that, uh, Seb, have you known Ryan since those days, uh, since those, uh, was it 2014? How long have you guys known each other? Fall I would say 2016, I think. No, it was spring 2017. That's when I rushed. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so spring 2017, when I was a freshman in college, it was my second semester of freshman year. Right. And, and now I'm not sure uh, who had the longer interview between the two and me, or the two of you and me. So, you know, it's funny, too, because, like, yeah, again, like, not that old at all, but, like, I feel like at this point it's so long ago, just like I'm sure 2016 must feel like forever ago for you guys. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's, yeah, it's, it reminds me of a better time, definitely. (laughs) December 2016. Yeah, that was uh, my first Christmas. In college, God, so so young, so full of vigor. <laughs> <laughs> All down the drain. Yeah. No, kidding. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I remember the interview uh, between the two of us very well. Um, if anything, bringing up my high school, that or at least my time at my high school paper was the best that I had, given you know, given that I I didn't have any experience from my freshman year because, well. I had experience for my freshman year, but it was late enough um, when I had started contributing for the Sundial. And, uh, yeah, I do remember coming in, and I remember seeing you. I remember – I forgot which 
desk you were at, and I think Pete might have been there, and that was back when Pete was still a sports writer. Um, this was all the pre-Kenny era, I should note, Sebastian. Um, mm. Kenny arrived on scene about, oh man, maybe a year later, I something like that. Like. 2015, because uh, I remember his uh, I remember his introduction. Uh, no offense, Ryan, but I remember his introduction very clearly because uh, yeah. you guys have known him already. Um, he won a contest, and Jody, our office general manager, took a photo of him for social media, and you know, oh. he was wearing sunglasses the whole time. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's still up somewhere. And from then on. You know, I told him, do you like football? And then, you know, do you like the Raiders? And then, you know, the story goes from there. But he was notable because uh, I remember his, you know, intro because he won a contest. And, uh, you know, that's definitely uh, one yeah, one of the more memorable ones. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the contest. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, huh. somebody read the sundial. Like, that, that was honestly kind of <laughs> the funniest part. It's like, oh, somebody reads student media. Thank God. You know, I, I don't know if you guys ever felt that, um, you know, uh, that feeling. Like, I used to, like, read the sundial, like, at, at school, like, uh, whatever the uh, student center was called with the with the Pollo Loco and the Burger King. But mm-hmm. I remember, you know, sitting on the second floor there back when I didn't know anybody as, as a freshman or, you know, at through junior, like, grabbing the paper and reading and just feeling like, wow, like, I feel like the most unhip guy on campus right now. Like, I'm reading the sundial, <laughs> like, you know, while I'm eating my lunch, but... Uh, yeah, man, print media was all like uh, the, uh, I wouldn't say the nerd campus, but definitely a nerdy activity to be into the paper. Mm-hmm. And I and I still remember Pete uh, going on about, you know, the sundial, like we're, we're our own fraternity. Uh, and oh, yes. me just kind of being like, okay, <laughs> oh, man. okay, man. If only okay. you knew. And, well, and, that, and Pete was in a fraternity, so... He could well, he say was. something like that's that. The, well, he was. That's the thing. He he got out when it was smart to get out. And I don't think... He, and his fraternity wasn't even nationally uh, recognized. <laughs> he totally crapping on his fraternity now. Like, well, well, I, well, no, well, no, no, no. I mean, like, literally, the reputation... And I'm sorry, Pete, if you happen to be listening. But the reputation of his of his specific fraternity, because it wasn't nationally recognized like on paper people just gave this fraternity so much shit like it was on it was honestly kind of funny that in the time spent on campus they didn't go through the effort of filing the paperwork to make it ifc i don't even think they were like igc like the inter, like the independent greek council or whatever that like everything else was a part of um i'm not sure no. now I, i'd have to double oh, check was, with him on that rough. maybe but everyone just gonna, would just shit on that. Yeah, like fraternity politics are a whole other world that I never got into. I rushed for one fraternity. I, I don't even remember the name. But, um, uh, you know, I uh, fraternity politics are, seem like a whole different world. Uh, I'm sure as a student newspaper person, you should probably know those things more often. And we did have, like, fraternity sorority people. But, mm. uh, yeah, when it comes to talking about that kind of stuff, like, I don't even know... It, any greek alphabet letters so it's just like yeah that's a, another world for me and and i should note to listeners uh wondering about the interview aspect yes andrew was my first boss so i i should just make that clear 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, for first Boston, like quotes, because it's just like, yeah, you're just saying. I hate saying that too. Like, uh, you know, boss. When you see the newspaper, like we're equals, you know, like, yeah. and, uh, and that boss term does carry a lot. I mean, if you're ever the boss of somebody and you're like they're equal, and it, it's hard, and uh, it, mm-hmm. it, I think it's a bad thing. So. Um, I hate to use that term, but uh, I know you would say El Jefe, which, you know, I lost that, so. <laughs> yes, I remember. I was about to say that, yeah, we, we, were, we were like, you know, hey, El Jefe, and, and you'd just kind of be like, what's up? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I guess this is, this is it now, but uh, yeah, and I'm glad you didn't call me El Presidente. I'm glad it was El Jefe, so. Um, I think I might yeah, have once, uh, now that I think about it, I'm not sure. I might have just in jest, but I, it was so long ago, and, and it had to have been just, you know, like a one-time thing, but I, maybe. Yeah, a nickname yeah. that I'm glad didn't stick, just like, uh, you know, other <laughs> other nicknames that I've received that I'm glad didn't stick. Uh, yeah, those were, those were wild days for sure. You know, one of the things that we always... Uh, we always talked about whenever we were, you know, off the clock or even when we were on the clock waiting uh, to be sure that, you know, the layouts were actually being printed and they were going to come to campus. Um, but one of the things that we would frequently talk about and uh, Pete and Kenny included would be about sort of the status of the journalism industry at that time, where obviously you had the whole catastrophe with advertising and how Facebook and Google were sort of eating up a lot of the advertising that used to go to print publications. And then, of course, all of the various media outlets not really being able to adapt uh, when it came to social media. And obviously, it's been several years since we had those discussions. But when you look back on sort of the direction of the journalism industry, I guess, what's what's sort of been your take when it comes to uh, what we've previously referred to as kind of the downfall of the journalism <laughs> industry? Or, or do you see it? Do you see it that way? Or, or do you think maybe it's on like kind of an uptick? That's you know, being very generous, like, but yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, as a journalist who's okay, I've been, I, I've been at uh, papers, uh, like my first job was at a paper that was weekly and that sold for 50 cents on the corner. And it was in a town that had no internet access. And I didn't even have internet in my house. I would have to go to the office and do internet. It was a very Mm. small town. And I went from that to going to, you know, a couple of daily papers, uh, eventually made my way to the um, conservative Boston Herald. And I (laughs) have seen it all. And I think journalism I don't want to be one of those people that's like journalism died a long time ago, but like it's definitely, uh, you know, downfall, upswing. Uh, is it possible to say neither? Like I have no opinion on it. I think uh, I'm definitely probably, you know, uh, I don't think it, somebody could call themselves jaded, but I'll call myself jaded when it comes to journalism because uh, I still haven't seen a place where uh, a newspaper, let's put, let's say that newspaper I think newspapers mm-hmm. are dead. I know they're still out there, but newspapers are completely dead. And digital journalism still has a long ways to go. Um, it's just like there's there's nothing that's going to save a print paper. And 
I, it sucks because there's designers, there's photographers, there's advertisements, there's so many factors that go into the print newspaper, but it's doing everybody a disservice to kind of keep them afloat. I'm sounding very doom and gloom, but uh, mm. every couple, every time I talk to like older people at the newsrooms, they're like, yeah, like in five years, there's only going to be like the New York Times and the Washington Post and such. <laughs> and, you know, I'm starting to be that person that's thinking that because like, I know we haven't had a wave of newspaper deaths, but uh, it's coming. You have the hedge funds buying up newspapers. Um, digital journalism, I guess people are getting better at paywalls, but just mean the quality is getting better. And uh, I really hate to be sound the death bell, but like, because I, I hear this all the time from the older colleagues, uh, older people that I come across in the industry. But man, journalism is uh, for anybody listening that wants to get into it. It's, 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 uh, not hot and I hope they tell you that in J school because um, I think that was one issue that you know our, our generation and probably your you know your classes too like uh, it's almost like people still didn't get it people still didn't realize that it's didn't adapt I mean I yeah some classes by uh, one of my classes was taught by a guy my, one of my investigative journalism classes was taught by a guy who did investigative journalism in the Midwest for broadcast. Um, you know, infamously, I, I could say, you know, dressed up, you know, did one of those like exposés, like I dressed up like a homeless guy. And I went to, uh, you know, I was a homeless guy in Midwest, a Midwest city for a couple of days. And, and that was the journalism we were getting taught when we got taught investigative. There was great professors, uh, but definitely uh, J schools are, did not, get the hint and I I'm very curious about the next generation um you know I I I I sound very curmudgeon but like even to this day like I get mad at like um you know like what is it the daily the New York Times podcast like I just hate anybody who likes that kind of stuff and like I I, I don't know why like I just have this aversion to like these new uh just, I guess, the new journalism out there. Um, I know they're trying. I know everyone's trying to find what works and what doesn't, but I'm just not a fan of most of it. Well, I think that that puts you probably in line with Sebastian, because I know you had some thoughts about sort of how the, the state of the industry is, especially, um, I guess, what's the best way to put it, Sebastian? You called it uh, media journalism, or, or what? kind of explain that again. Essentially, what I boiled it down into was pop cultural journalism. So it's things that are written and produced for the sole purpose of generating ad revenue through clicks, um, or in this case, buying a paper. But at this point in time, who the fuck buys a paper anymore, right? So mm -hmm. it's very poppy titles, very flashy wording, typically enveloping aspects of media that the majority the vast majority of people have already seen and there isn't much expansion upon it and I, I my favorite example is anything having to do with sort of blue chip ipos such as disney marvel star wars or really anything having to deal with what is in touch with who we were as kids and now that we're adults we can sort of expand upon that well if you have millions and millions of people with journalism degrees that think that they can expand upon it uh, i've said this once and i'll say it again 
I go back to Syndrome of the Incredibles. You know, if everyone thinks that they're super, then no one will be. So really, at the end of the day, what is one opinion in comparison to another opinion? If it's on the same topic, basically having the same perspective of it all. You know, I'm not, simply put, I'm not interested in what some 20-something degen has to say about a program, a, a consumer, a consumable good that has no intrinsic value after day one, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it may be good for the first five minutes, you know, to get your adrenaline up, but this is the type of stuff that you would see on clickbaity sites like BuzzFeed, where it's like, it's it's very vapid, it's very fleeting, and it's, overall, to me, it's not good media, but you know, these companies, they make billions of dollars off of short attention spans. So it must be working to some degree. But I'm curious uh, what media you read or what media, actually, what media, what media do you trust? What media do you read? Typically, I prefer to stick to just simply books. I, I try to avoid the news whenever possible. Um, it's just, it's not... It's not my place to really delve into it and, and, and find a solution to the problem that everyone is attempting to do at the same time. You know, I'm not saying that, oh, woe is me. I'm I'm the doomer in this conversation. You know, there is no solution to the problem. But if I, I look at it being a problem, if everyone in the room thinks that they have a solution and it's it's. It's my way or the highway kind of thing. I, I may be getting this wrong. Correct me if I am. But I think what Andrew means is like when it comes to receiving any kind of information, is there any particular news source <laughs> yeah, that you like, would turn um, to? Oh, okay, no, like, not. Oh, no, not a chance. Not not a chance, so, dude. And, and, and I'm stuck. And I, I know I'm the outlier. I'm I'm up against two journalists here. Are it you telling me you don't read the Proclaimer? No, I'm just uh-huh. kidding. <laughs> I mean, let, let, let's put it this way: How did you hear about Biden's victory? Apart from people either shrilling about it or cheering about it, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I heard about it because it's just, it's, it's what it was. It, it was what was that's, happening that's in the a, country. That's a, that's an awful example. How did you, like, for instance, let's say the, the stimulus package or like. Uh, Megan Markle's interview. Like, uh, do, you, do you do you get it all from Twitter or like what oh, is God, your news no. no, Twitter Twitter is not my thing either. And he's ditched Facebook. I'm so I've ditched, I, I've ditched I'm so Facebook. So proud of you, yeah. my friend. Yeah. Well, how do I how do yeah. I receive my information? I guess you could say that I receive it as well as anyone who was born in the '80s would, casually and infrequently. <laughs> now. Now, you know, if that happens to make me a terrible person not keeping up with every single facet of every single news source, okay, I guess that makes me a bad person. Not at all, because that's a chore, and, and especially as a journalist, too. It's a one-upping game of like, well, did you hear this? Well, did you hear this? You know, and... I, I'd, like to, and I'd like to kind of ask if I could spin the conversation. What yeah. is it with the, with the whole one-upping nature of it all? Because you could, like, if you take personal bias out of the equation... Regardless of where you get your information from, what is the, I guess, end goal of one-upmanship in the journalism field? To, to get those views, to get those clicks. I mean, your individual brand is worth so much now when you have a Twitter account that 
you know, if you're, if you're not posting to a Twitter account for the paper, you're, it's, it's just your brand, you know, cause, uh, nothing, can I, you know, can I ask if that is fulfilling in any way? I'm not trying to psychoanalyze I, you here. I'm just, I'm just really oh trying no, to grasp. Like, I'm really trying to grasp what goes through these journalists' heads when they post something to Twitter, for example, and they do it for the views. They know they're doing it for the views, and either it doesn't it doesn't bring them the response they they had intended or expected. You know, like what what happens? I think there's you know there's a couple of things, and and then maybe just a, a, a per uh, to. to and just a disclaimer, I, if you look at my Twitter feed, I do not post at all. Um, you know, I posting is a tour for me. If you look at my Twitter feed, I probably post once a month. I hate Twitter. Um, I deleted the app off my phone. It was really just a waste of time. But, um, you know, it is useful to find the news sometimes. But as far as people posting themselves, I mean, you do have the kind of nerdy types that want to be like the voice of record. I think there is some value if you're a journalist going to – if you're not covering the same thing, like if you're covering like a small court hearing or if you're the only person on the story, there's value in that. Or like, you know, back in my old high school journalism, uh, covering covering high school sports journalism, when you're the only person in every, anywhere t- uh, tweeting the results of like a football game, you, you're the only source of news for like a community, uh, somebody's parents, somebody's family. When it's something that you know you're the only person covering, I think being the voice of record there's something, you know, worthwhile in that. And there's something, you know, good in that. But when it comes to these people that are like, you know, tweeting while Biden's stimulus package or something like that, like when you're the 18th journalist to like tweet it the moment it comes out or something like that, like I find zero use in that. I've never followed anybody because they were second on a news story, let alone first. And I, I am just as puzzled as you when there's this race to be first um, self-promotion it's one thing, but also just, yeah, I guess race to be first is that self-promotion, but I don't understand the journalist obsession on Twitter as much as you do, which is why I've deleted it, and which is why I try to keep my own brand to a minimum. Uh, I it, It's like a necessity for me, but mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, Twitter, Twitter is trash. Promoting your own brand is trash. I hate journalists. Well, well, I don't want to go that far. Um, I, I, <laughs> oh, I, I got I, you. Oh, I oh, I got your ass. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, gosh, man. You guys, you, you walked, that's uh, the title of the episode. No, I'm just kidding. You walked right into that. <laughs> well, well, no, it, it's, like, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to like make I, a mouth out of your little blunder there, but no, it is very refreshing to, to hear from a journalist how asinine the field is because nobody wants to admit that their field has major flaws and coming from someone who's a communications major uh a major which i thought was marketable to all high hell um i'm still working for just a little over minimum wage okay so it's like okay obviously this degree didn't get me that far there's there's steps i need to take that you know to make the most out of my career with anything but it's like it's very interesting to see because you don't get journalists that say that you don't get people on twitter who have a stick up their ass about everything with a little blue verified check mark thinking that they're doing any wrong when there's actually a lot of wrong out there that they're doing yeah and uh you know if, if that's what somebody wants to be fine but like the thing about that too is like you always have to be on 
you know, there's no separation of work and personal life. And, you know, journalists are really, I guess nowadays, every job, but like journalism, journalists are, you know, among the most guilty of uh, blurring the lines of personal uh, boundaries. And, uh, you know, if journalists, if journalists want to complain about getting overworked, it's their own fault because they have no boundaries. You know, if I see the breaking news story at 10 p.m. and I retweet it, you know, it's just going to open up a whole new uh, can of worms. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, if, if, if a journalist wants to complain about the industry, but they're that type, you know, they're only harming themselves. I think it's definitely an industry that acknowledges it has problems, but I think a lot of people are still, I think a lot of people, you know, know the reality, can face the reality, newspapers are dying, we don't know what to do with digital journalism and such, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I just think there's definitely a huge problem of people thinking that, you know, there it, it can be saved. It's going to persist. It's not going to die off completely, but there's definitely mm-hmm. plenty out there who are saying that, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a difference, and other than being kind of like... Um, the voice of record or in, for those smaller talent journalists who are more admirable in my eyes than the, uh, you know, God forbid I say the, the Maggie Haberstrom's, but like, uh, <laughs> I said her name wrong, but oh, uh, uh, Haberman. Haberman. Yeah. I, I, I was into her when Trump got in office, but then I realized, you know, it's all just more BS. So waste of my time. <laughs> I'm not saying that her work is not important, but, uh, you know, I've come to realize that, you know, these uh, small town journalists, people covering communities that don't get covered, uh, you know, these real voices of uh, keepers of the record, because that's how my hometown was. I didn't have any of this perspective when I was working at a paper that was in a town with no Internet uh, and was literally the only uh, keeper of record. If you want to look up the town's history, you looked at the newspaper. So uh, mm-hmm. those journalists are, are very commendable. But uh, for anybody that's like at a you know at a mid-tier paper or mid-tier uh, whatever blog uh, putting out like you know uh, game scores or you know votes in congress or something like that i don't know what you're doing mm-hmm. <laughs> well that's how you get more of the, the infotainment news where it's people that want to get into something like sports journalism for the sake of being for lack of a better term and realistically it is the term to be used the next pundit and the same can go when it comes to political journalism. You know, we've encountered, especially at our time at CSUN, a lot of those guys that wanted to be either on ESPN or CNN. And some of them have the touch, like Kenny and Pete. And then there's others that, you know, it, it winds up feeling more like they're just kissing ass. And I think, too, when it comes down to that blurred line of, you know, promoting your brand, but also trying to be sort of your own independent voice. Uh, look no further than the one thing that I always bring up uh, to the three of you guys. Whenever you get a journalist that tweets some personal news, Ugh. you know, like and 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 Sebastian, if if you knew, like the those three words have been somewhat the bane of my existence for the last couple of years merely because of the fact that a i did do that once and uh pete wanted me to hear it um he he was never gonna let me uh, forget about it in all seriousness it is something that i think shows what that hustle is like unfortunately where you know journalists are trying to sort of break free from 
the shackles of just being the straight-laced, you know, guy with a press hat, like the stereotype that everyone thinks. But at the same time, they want to promote themselves and they want to make themselves look more marketable. But if there's nobody out there that's going to hire you, then you're just another voice in the ether. And, you know, well, you've got to be another voice in the ether to get noticed in the first place and to be represented. I mean, how do you think actors find work? You still have to audition. And the journalistic field, you have to, you know, I guess in that sort of same general sphere of you know proving yourself you have to write something that is worth showcasing now i'm gonna give an example ryan with the proclaimer yes you are the co-editor-in-chief you are one of the two co-editors-in-chief okay well no i am am the editor-in-chief okay oh okay even better you are the editor-in-chief what you say goes therefore you are the judge jury and executioner now if you were to somehow take your happy ass over to cnn eh, you know you're going to run into a little bit of a roadblock because no matter what kind of experience you have that doesn't matter it it has to fall in line with their beliefs you're not going to have someone from jezebel go over to oan and expect a position it's not going to work well, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you either align with our beliefs or get fucked. And I mean, as someone who, I don't know, thinks that job security should be a little bit easier <laughs> to get a hold of. I don't know. I don't think I'm crazy when I say that either. I mean, uh, this is not the best example in the world, but like I became the and this, you know, the to not be humble for a second, I became the federal courts reporter for the Boston Herald. And I was covering, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the Boston bombers of the death sentence appeal. Um, I was covering Lori Laughlin on the college admission scandal. You know, I was there in the courtroom every day, Uh, not every day. It wasn't trial, but like I was there uh, for everything. And I was covering some of the biggest stories for, you know, what on paper is a pretty brand name paper, but also the paper was, one of the only papers, notoriously one of the only papers to, what was it? Well, endorse Trump in general. I don't think they endorsed him in 2016, the, a year before I got there, but or two years before I got there. But um, by the time I had joined the Boston Herald in 2018, uh, one of the only like unbashedly pro-Trump papers in the whole country. And I, I actually had moments too where I would write stories. I remember writing one story about uh, some, uh, you know, some. Uh, some U.S. representatives uh, going to visit El Paso and uh, mm. see the kids in cages, I believe. And um, I had comments on my story of just being like, well, of course Martinez would write about this. Like, who is this guy and stuff like that? And I was writing for a paper for a racist audience. Um, I don't think that was a factor in any you know, decisions the paper made t- toward me towards the end. <laughs> but at the same time, mm. um, you can, I think there's a sense, uh, there's a bit of faking it till you make it. I mean, it's the kind of question that you might ask yourself, like, and, you know, to ask yourself seriously, it's the kind of hypothetical that I mean, my girlfriend would ask sometimes too, to each other. It's just like, you know, like, let's, like, if, if, uh, if a Trump, if the Trump campaign offered you like a million dollars a year or something, you know, to work or, you know, sometimes that job security, sometimes selling out and getting the bag is, uh, it's very tempting. It's very tempting. So, 
you know, plenty of usual examples of uh, Jezebel and uh, OAN, but like, um, you know, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, those are those are two those are two opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, like I get it. But if it's one of those things where you could have probably gotten away with sticking to your guns, sticking to your moral beliefs and saying no. But if you really want to look at where we are now in the 21st century amidst coronavirus, where a lot of people don't even know where their next red cent is coming from. Mm -hmm. I mean, fuck, like it's not too far-fetched to, to say that like people would be switching sides for the sake of money honestly that is something that if and, and not to try and get too political but uh that's that's something that this last election i think taught a lot of people and i think a lot of people on uh the blue side probably got a harder lesson of that than those on the red you know i i think that you are going to have people that are going to be making those decisions based on, you know, hey, is this something that's going to pay the bills and pay rent? And, you know, I, I, I can speak for myself in that I work I did work for a conservative paper. And realistically, you know, I went into the interview and I mentioned being, you know, being in, in conversations with people in the community that were a little bit more left leaning but I was also coming at it as, look, I just got out of college and I I'm just finding out who the big names are in the community. And this just so happens to be the people that I at the time I agreed with. But it was also the people that I frankly just found to be more friendly and they were willing to reach back to me after I reached out to them because I was like, hey, I live out here, but I'm trying to understand what the hell's going on. Can you help me? Oh, yeah, sure, Ryan. And. Ultimately, I got the job at that publication. Um, years later, they ended up basically writing these two really half-assed endorsement. Uh, one was an endorsement for Donald Trump, or at least it was a very half-assed way of saying they endorse him. And the other one was basically going after Biden on issues that are serious and deserve to be looked into. But at the same time, they were taking the Fox News angle and not really looking at them critically they were looking at him more from the standpoint of, well, if Donald Trump did any of this and he did, it's OK. But Joe Biden does it and we really need to look into it. And so when it when it comes to something like that, I just boiled it down to, look, I need a journalism job right about now. I'm out of college and, you know, I'm from the area like this paper needs voices from people that are local. And I think that's another issue. That's something this is another thing Andrew and I have talked about at length. Uh, as well as with Kenny and Pete, is the necessity for A, local news, and B, local news that's written by people that are local, which is an issue that, you know, the LA Times has certainly had. And, you know, in, in my case, that's worked out. But I also understand, you know, what people like Andrew, what you've done, where you got to get the hell out of Dodge and find where the jobs are, you know. So it's, it's problematic and it, there's so many issues that go into why the industry is in such a weird state and especially what people in media have to de- the decisions that they have to make. But at the same time, I think it, it's almost as if we have a safety net when it comes to um, other people that we follow in journalism who also see the problems and 
they're basically just getting by without needing to anchor themselves somewhere and you know and they're local you know like like kenny pete myself and andrew we all follow people that are from in and around socal and they all see it too you know they see what a lot of those issues are but they also know they need to make a buck and they also know that they need to keep their profile you know keep it growing keep it consistent so it's there's so many issues that go into it and there's so many real dilemmas that you're you're right sebastian it's like what do you do if you have to make a choice of going somewhere where you might not agree with their politics and sometimes you just gotta say no fuck that i don't i it, it, oh it's it's uh can i can i ask from q and on can Lee. i can i ask something real quick if yeah. we were to hypothetically live in sort of a society that didn't have social media there was no way for oh man fuck you <laughs> it's my question okay <laughs> if we were if, if we were to live in a society that didn't have social media to the extent that we do where fact checkers didn't come out of the woodwork and just proclaim left right center sideways and there was an instance where you were at a job interview for a news station that had like you didn't know what it was walking into i really don't know how to frame this question other than would it matter what news outlet you were working at if it didn't have a spotlight shined on it in a particular way i don't think so i mean via social media via social media like if we didn't have expectations and perspectives going into it as we do now like oh Mm. cnn is liberal fox news is conservative the sky is blue up is up down is down you know what i mean if we didn't have those perspectives and we were just like oh hey you know i'm just going into my position at fox news do you think people would would really care no or have we let or have we let sort of the perspective of social media dictate like, oh, I shouldn't associate with them. They're they're not they're not a credible journalist. You you they're not a credible journalist or journalistic you know. outlet, even though millions upon millions of people watch it. So right. are millions and millions of people just flat out wrong in their opinions? Like yeah, I don't. I guess yeah. Turns into a question of cancel culture if it's right or wrong. I mean. It's like, you know, let's say somebody, you know, got a job as like, you know, like a background job at like OAN, but they were getting the mm-hmm, bag. Right. I mean, at one hand, you'd be happy for them. It's not like, and it's like, yeah, there's a ton of people that are working at places that, you know, they don't align with. I, all my former colleagues at the Boston Herald, I could probably safely say that, not huge Trump fans, to put it that way. And it's just like, yeah, it's just, I, I think. You know, the people, if anybody wants to criticize that, uh, you know, unless you're on TV, unless you're like the face of, unless you're like uh, the literal face on TV of hypocrisy, I think if you're just trying to get your experience in, if you're just trying to make a living, uh, Mm -hmm. or, you know, looking for that opportunity, uh, if somebody wants to criticize them, they haven't been in that position. They've had the luxury of not having to go that way. They've had the luxury of like, being able to, and yeah, you have every right and you should quit a job if it doesn't align with your beliefs like that, but a lot of times people can't afford to. Anybody who wants to criticize people for that, I mean, that's why, like, you know, I, uh, 
I see it on LinkedIn every now and then too. I'll see like somebody like, oh, like, you know, so-and-so at this, uh, you know, at a conservative place or such. And like, I'm not really blaming them at all. Like they probably got, it's like a promotion for them. It's a, it's a move up, but uh, anybody who wants to criticize, I think, uh, you know, you just need to put yourself in their shoes because uh, yeah, again, unless they're behind, unless there's the byline, unless there's a face on TV saying that kind of stuff. If you're one of if one of you guys in two years is just like, yep, I'm, you know, about a digital producer for OAN, I would still give you a high five. <laughs> you know, you have a lot of those publications in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s that obviously never had social media, but between a growing readership and influential editors and and to name one in specific, um, National Review, you arguably wouldn't have had, what, like 20, no, almost 30 years of, uh, you know, a growing conservative movement in America. You know, you wouldn't have a William F. Buckley behind the scenes looking all leathery and reptilian like he did, you know, licking his chops like he would, ooh, the way he would... Anyway, it just grossing me out thinking about it because it, anyway, um, you know, like the fact that he had that level of influence on, you know, Barry Goldwater, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, like that was in an era where you didn't have Fox, you didn't have social media, especially, but you still had enough recognition towards people within all of the growing conservative outlets, whether it was National Review, the Weekly Standard commentary you know you you started to get more and more of that and it started to get a little bit more influential with your uh Podhoritzes and your buckley's and of course later on with bill crystal during the iraq war um yeah it's kind of like you can still have that and you can still have that negative perception if it is negative you could still have it exist because you can still have people out there go after and, you know, correctly so, uh, confront any of their theories and thoughts and ideas in print. It's just that, you know, that's all kind of died away because, A, that specific conservative movement has evolved. And, B, everyone on the left has basically migrated to social media um, or worse, the Atlantic. Yeah. So. <laughs> And, 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 you know, and it's the kind of thing, too, where it's like everybody has, what is the TV show, Flanderized, I think, like, you know, mm -hmm. some of these, uh, yeah, I, I think everybody's, you know, almost become a character of themselves. So uh, anybody that's been in the spotlight that long, it almost, it almost even just kind of goes back to that, what is it, that Harvey Dent line of just like, you know, uh, you, you, <laughs> you got to help me out here. Like, you become the enemy of your, or, uh, or the dawn or what is it? You either die a hero or you live long yeah. enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's so true. It's so true. I can't believe that a movie like that is, you know, speaks truth. Like we laugh at Christopher Nolan movies now, but it's true. <laughs> well, if I could live, if I could leave you with one shred of advice, many shred of advices, it's to question the narrative and trust the plan. You know where that's from? No. It, 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 they're they're both really they're both really rousing lines, right? Like you believe it, right? 
Well, question the narrative. I mean, that, that's that's part of my biology, but okay. follow the plan. Well, I, 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 but you would agree that those are both sound statements, right? Sure. Uh, I just got your things. asses. I got your asses. Those are both QAnon statements. Good night, everybody. Oh. <laughs> 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 Fucking torched your ass. I'm kidding. Um, I mean, hey, goes to show you can brand something in any way. People will buy it. Lock, shot, and bu- lock, shot, and barrel. Oh, and, and just look at MAGA. That's that's repackaged. That's recycled. That's uh, right. to paraphrase Ian Malcolm. That's retaped onto a plastic lunchbox and sold several decades after Ronald Reagan first said it. Oh, so so gross you say that. I just watched a Netflix documentary called Capital when I was frustrated at capitalism the other day and. Mm-hmm. They include the Ronald Reagan clip of him saying that, and I knew it was coming, and it was so gross. So, uh, <laughs> Netflix viewing for you guys. Well, what was it called again? I think it's just called Capital, and uh, it's uh, based off a book by a French guy talking. Like, I think the thesis was that you know the, the what he sees right now in the world, or I guess specifically the United States are conditions similar to 18th century, 19th century France. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's too alarmist to say, but at the same time, uh, totally believable. Oh, that's uh, the Thomas Piketty, like, thousand-page book, right? Uh, not sure. Uh, all I know is a French guy. <laughs> Great journalist. Doesn't even know any titles or anything. like. That. I saw it, like, two days ago, but, like, hey, it's okay. on Netflix. I'm sure you'd enjoy it, but it uh, is uh, anti-capitalism, which, uh, you know, anything anti-capitalism, I'm all for. So, <laughs> so before we let you go, uh, what's the first uh, – well, I guess we probably should have asked this from the very get-go. I guess where, where are you currently reporting from? Uh, I currently work at BizNow, B I S. As in Sam N O W, as I say on the phone every single day, it mm. is a commercial real estate reporting website. I mm. write about commercial real estate. It's been a weird path that I end up here, but um, I am covering uh, the business of buildings basically, and it's honestly more interesting than you think. It um, it really kind of is the background of what's going on in your community. So. Um, mm really what these giant developers and giant, you know, when you look at the skyscrapers and buildings and uh, what's under construction, uh, there's a lot going beyond, beyond the scenes that everybody should really know about. So in a weird way, it's been a great opportunity to set some light and things. So yeah, commercial mm-hmm. real estate. What's the, uh, the headline for your next story? Um, because I'm sure this uh, would come out not, uh, you know, not in time for the, not ahead of the story. Um, I'm writing, a, I'm writing about the riveting battle between e-commerce distribution, these last mile type facilities and biomanufacturing facilities competing for uh, industrial space in the suburbs. Basically, the gist of it is that these uh, warehouses that are popping up, you know, like for instance, like a Peloton, which just opened up out here. Uh, the Pelotons, the Home Depots, the Lowe's of the world are bidding against the people making our drugs for space. So that's what I'm working on. Cool. Nice. Well, we'll make sure to <laughs> appreciate share. the 
it's it's work <laughs> you're you're getting your work out there and you know we'll we'll definitely share it once it drops andrew before we let you go uh where can the good people find you on social media oh god um I didn't work on don't worry don't worry don't worry i hate social media too i deleted facebook um, and honestly i feel freer yeah i believe the last time i checked my name on twitter is andrew o martinez oh so andrew o martinez all one word uh if that's on my twitter handle i'm sorry but you're not missing anything so that's really all you can find me at this guy's off the grid i love him already <laughs> uh, it's, it's too late you know i even having my byline is too much andrew martinez is a very common name but uh i wish i could be more off the grid we can all dream <laughs> yeah hey and, and, and don't worry. Uh, I, i've had enough like phone conversations now too conversation for another day but like uh journalism in the age of social distancing also doesn't help so uh yeah totally understand <laughs> oh yeah that, that could have been a whole well that'll be That'll be down the road. We'll have you come on, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about uh, sort of journalism in the age of COVID. But, um, Andrew, it has been the utmost pleasure having you on the show. You can bet we'll get you back on, uh, especially to talk about journalism in the age of COVID. Um, But, of course, as we let you go, uh, we give this special farewell to all of our first-time guests. Andrew, welcome to Mars. Thank you, guys. A pleasure to be here. Welcome to Mars. And now on to some personal news. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So so, so is this the awkward bit at the end of the post-recording session? No, this is when Ryan doesn't know how to end the damn recording. (laughs) No, this is the part where Ryan is about to press stop recording. You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urberich while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. Once again, I am Ryan Mancini, and my co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs>